Uh, we, we met up. It was one of those meetings, uh, I probably shared this before, but it's been a while since I've been with you. One of those meetings where he and I sat down to have lunch together, and um, it took us about 30 to 45 seconds to realize, here's a brother. Here's someone with whom I am, I'm like-minded. We have the same goals, which is the honor of Christ. And um, so I've had a deep love for him ever since, and uh, we get together occasionally. And uh, he's preached at our church a few times, and now I've uh, gotten to preach with you all a few times. So um, I look forward to the privilege. We're going to be in Psalm 19, if you want to go ahead and turn there with me. Psalm 19, we just finished a, a series our elders did at our church on the Psalms. We're now in Galatians, and um, it has been a blessing to us, and this is one of the passages that we had the joy of looking at. And so, uh, if you don't mind doing so again, stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'll read this text and pray, and then we will, we will jump into the text. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving His chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit uh, to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. That I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. That the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now, Lord, own your word. Apply it to our minds and hearts. Let us see. Lord, let us taste. Let us grasp with our minds, our hearts, our all. The glory and the beauty of your word that you would cause it to be that which shapes our lives and our views and our understanding of who you are for Christ's sake. Amen. You may be seated. This psalm is about how God makes himself known to us so that, that we may see his glory and respond to him with faith and obedience. So do you know him? Have you seen him today? In the way this psalmist is going to tell us about. How, how does that happen? How does God make himself known to people like us? To sinners uh, who can't see spiritual things with natural eyes. Well, I want you to see that God makes himself known to us through two books. Uh, two places where his glory and power are on display. First, there is the book of nature. 
where God makes Himself known to us through what He has made. Second, there is the book of Scripture where God reveals Himself more clearly that we may know who He is, what He has done, and what He requires of us. And so we have the book of nature and we have the book of Scripture, also called general revelation and special revelation. And these are the instruments that God has given us so that we may indeed know Him. And that's what this psalm is about. And so first let's look at the the first book, the book of nature, uh, general revelation. Uh, God makes His glory known to us through the book of nature. Uh, we see that in verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. So go outside. Look up at the heavens. What do you see? On a clear day, it would be you know, blue skies and the shining sun. Uh, on a day like today, a whole bunch of clouds. If it's night and clear, you see the moon and uh, the stars and the galaxies and all the other marvels. All of it's so beautiful. I remember when our daughter Stephanie was just a baby and my wife and I lived in Texas. And if you've been to Texas, you have those huge, big skies. And uh, one night we picked her up from an event at our church. And I guess she'd never really been outside that she remembered in her, in her you know, toddlerhood. And as I was getting ready to put her into the car seat, suddenly she stiffened and I heard a gasp. And I looked and she's looking up with her hand like that. I said, oh, Steffi, those are stars. And she said, stars. And there was just this sense of glory at what she was seeing. All of that, which we grow callous to, I'm afraid. All of that, verse 1 says, is shouting the news. God has made us and He's glorious. Look up and see what God has made. See the glory. Stand in awe under this night sky. Peer into the infinite vastness and beauty of space. And when you see it, know this. God has made us for His own glory. And any glory that you may see in us is but a pale reflection of the glory and the beauty that is in Him. So look and see. And when you see, think of Him. Because that is why we are here. Do you see the heavens like that? You see, that is the impact that they are meant to have on us. That is the, the impact the Creator has built into them. And really, it's only the, the blinders of sin that, that keep us from seeing it that way. Uh, creation itself is designed to be a sanctuary of divine majesty. Or as uh, Calvin said, it is the theater of God's glory. Here, His greatness is meant to be seen. Do you see it? Do you see the heavens like that? Can you, can you hear the song of nature shouting at you day after day, night after night, as verse 2 says here? Uh, these words indicate that the heavens, they're not just whispering about God's glory. They're, they're shouting it. They pour forth speech, it says, like a, like a rushing stream flowing relentlessly out of the heavens uh, in the light of every single star. Trying to get our attention. 
trying to awaken us. Look, they say, listen to our wordless speech. Oh, we want you to see it. Do you see it? When's the last time that you went outside and sat under the night sky and just marveled at the majesty of God on display there? Of course, it is a wordless majesty. Verse 3 says there is no speech. There are no actual words. I've called it the book of nature, but there's no actual book there. This news resounds in the very structure of creation itself. And so they, they shout without sound. They speak without words. And yet their sound, it says, reverberates throughout the universe. And it's not subtle either. It's not hidden. Um, in fact, it is something that is meant to be seen by every eye on this planet. Verse 4 says their voice, or, or better translated, their loud cry goes out to the whole earth so that, that, that all are without excuse. No one can look at this, these glories of creation and say, you know, I, I really didn't see it. Oh, they, they did see it. They just ignored it. You've seen it. If you've got eyes to see, you've seen it. One of the great tragedies of our modern secular age is how it blinds us to God's glory. Uh, it seems like we've labored to obscure what the heavens so clearly proclaim. We obscure it with our technology. You know, you know, standing in the midst of the bright city with all of its noise and buildings and lights, you can't see the glory that God has made because all you can see in your field of vision is what man has made. And really, that's almost a parable, isn't it, of what secularism does to us, how it obscures the reality of God's presence, how it hides the beauty that He has placed all around us. And it's not just technology. By the way, I'm not saying technology. It's about to kind of like technology. You know, I, I drove here in a car and I wasn't freezing half to death you know, on, on a mule or something. There's nothing wrong with technology. It's just that technology has this tendency to get in the way. Uh, to obscure that which God has created. But then it's not just technology. It's it's also caused by the, the cold indifference of our sinful hearts. In our sin, we don't really want to see God. We don't want, really want there to be this all-glorious, supreme being to whom we are personally accountable. You remember how the Apostle Paul picks up on that in Romans 1, 19 and 20, when he says, For what? can be known about God is plain to them, speaking of mankind in sin, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they, that's you and me, are without excuse. Notice, without excuse. We ought to have seen it. The, the beauty and glory of God are so clearly etched in creation that everyone with eyes ought to see. So why don't we see? Paul answers that one in verse 18 of that passage. He says, because in our unrighteousness, we suppress the truth. 
We hold it down. We, we stuff it in a box. We, we press it away from us and refuse to see it. He continues in verse 21 and 22 of Romans 1. He says, For although they knew God, uh, they didn't honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools. Uh, it is the fool who refuses to acknowledge what his eyes can plainly see. But that is the plight of sinful man. Rather than seeing and celebrating the glory of God and joining the created universe in His praise, we look up at the stars and choose instead to see astrology and construct a a horoscope and think that maybe somehow the position of those stars are what determine our fate. Well, how foolish. Or, we look at all the beauty and we write it all off to chance as nothing more than physics uh, and, and physical motion and Newtonian action. And, and all we can see above us is the cold emptiness of space where we, we ought to see the warm embrace of His majesty. Again, how foolish. But the sinful heart can never see what the sinful heart do, uh, doesn't want to see. And then at the end of verse 4, The psalmist shifts away from creation in general to the Son in particular. It was in that song we sang. Verse 4, about halfway through, says, And in them, in these heavens, he has set a tent for the Son, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving its chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. You, You recognize that this is poetic language, of course. But for a reason. Uh, Many ancient cultures worshipped the sun as a god. The Babylonians uh, called him Shamash, or later in their history, a Shapsu. And in their myths, he was pictured as a bridegroom who would rise from his bed every morning to run his course across the heavens before returning to rest in the arms of his bride, the sea. And David picks up on that myth and he he says, no, 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 Babylon and all the rest of the pagan world, you've got it wrong. Yeah, the sun's kind of like that. He runs his course across the heavens and it's glorious, but but, but he's not a god to be looked up to and worshipped. He is the servant of God shouting the news. God is the one who should be worshipped. I love this picture he paints of the sun as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber with Joy to meet his bride. Um, I recently, in the month of November, had the joy of marrying two of our young couples who've grown up in our church, known each other their whole lives, and get this, they married within two weeks of each other, and the, the girls were both sisters. So you pray for that family. Um, so I've known these young men since they were young. And I get a real unique perspective as pastor. I'm on the platform with them. I got the best seat in the house. You should have seen those young men when their bride first entered the church. And this is the day I get to marry her. I'm thinking of one in particular. He lit up uh, just like the sun with this his joy across his face. I thought he was going to bust or something. This is the picture he gives of the sun. The psalmist says this is how the sun leaps in joy to the service of God. And it's how we ought to serve him as well. Creation speaks 
It sings. It shouts. It calls to us to join with it in celebrating the God who's created such wonders. And, and you and I ought to join. We ought to celebrate. And so just take some time this week, if, if you can find it, or just make some time, just to stop at some point, to contemplate the majesty and beauty of God revealed in the heavens in order to draw from you that sense of awe and wonder that are the foundations for our worship. And yet, as glorious as that revelation in nature is, there is one much, much better. Not just the book of nature to draw us to all, but second of all, special revelation itself. God's book, the scriptures, where God has made himself known even more beautifully, more gloriously, and above all, more clearly. That we may indeed know and worship him. Verse 7 to 9, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, uh, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Oh, uh, this is a song of the glory of God. This psalm is the glory of God that is revealed in Scripture. And, and notice, notice that it is a much more glorious revelation even than those heavens. The, the psalmist does something here that's it's a, it's a little subtle, but it's very, very instructive. Notice in that opening section on creation, those first six verses, he only mentions God once in verse 1. And he does so using a very general term for God, El, which is just a, a generic way of saying God. And I think he does that because general revelation, as wonderful as it is, it can tell us about God to be sure, but it doesn't tell us very much. There's not much detail. But special revelation, God's word gives us so very much more. Notice how he indicates that in these verses, beginning in verse 7, we find not just the generic name El, but the covenant name of God, Yahweh the Lord. You see that in your translation, most of you, either with Yahweh or with capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which is the same thing. He gives us the name of God seven times, this personal covenant name, because he is pointing to that which personally and covenantally reveals God to us in a way that he may actually be known. And so that's what the Bible gives to us. Not just vague hints about how, who God may be as creator, but a clear knowledge and understanding of who he is and what he is to us and what he requires of us. And so in these verses, the psalmist paints six pictures of the beauty of God's word and how that word brings good from him into our lives. That's verses 7 to 9. And, and notice how he does it too. There's a structure here. In each of these six pictures, he's going to give us, first of all, a noun that names the quality of God's word. For example, he says in verse 7 that it's the law. That's its name. It's the law, the Torah. Then, along with that, he gives us an adjective that describes its beauty to us. Verse 7 says that law is perfect. That's its quality, perfection. Followed in each passage 
by a verb that indicates the power or the action, what that word does in us. Verse 7 says it revives the soul. And so with each of these six qualities, he's going to do the same thing. The, the noun describing it, the adjective um, uh, giving us more detail uh, uh, about its beauty, and then the verb giving us its action. So quickly looking at these, God's law, verse 7, the law of Yahweh, the, the law of our covenant God is perfect, reviving the soul. First of all, it is his law, meaning this is God's faithful declaration to us of what He requires of us as human beings. And this law telling us what God requires is perfect. Notice that. It is flawless. It never errs or misleads us. It is, we might say, inerrant. It will never mislead you about God or what God requires. It is, it is sure and certain, a light that guides you through life. Therefore, he says it is life-giving. That's what revives the soul means. It brings life to those who are dead. It awakens those who are asleep. And how does it do that? By bringing us to repentance in the face of the majesty of God. That, that's actually what this word revives means. It, it, it's a turning and a returning. It turns you from your sin back to God that you may find in Him the life your soul needs. Second, the testimony of the Lord is sure. That means that it will not fail you. A testimony is that which tells the truth about someone. The truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. And God's word is his testimony about himself to us. It is his covenantal word of promise wherein he reveals himself so that we may indeed actually know him. And notice that it says it is sure. That is, you can put your whole weight down on it and it won't give way. It won't fail you. We could use the word infallible. It will not fail to bring you the truth about God and life and everything else that is needed. That's why it says it has power to make wise the simple. It shows us dummies what's real, what is good, what is right in how we must live. To live in a God-made world without real knowledge of who God is and what God requires would, it, would be the height of not only stupidity but insanity. But this, the Word, is wisdom. It shows us what's real. Third, the precepts of the Lord are right. A precept is something that God has appointed for us to have something appointed for our good. And, and God's word is like that. It is always right. It is never wrong about how we must live in a God made world. You look at what it says and you see what is right and what is good and what is stable and what is unchanging and what because it is right and good will keep you from evil. One man I was reading said this. He said, whatever a culture in rebellion against God might say to the contrary, God's precepts and commandments determine what is morally upright. They don't just reflect what is morally upright outside of God. They determine as God's word what is morally upright. 
and for our good. So, so, so let the culture proclaim whatever it will. Uh, let it contradict God's word. But every time and every place it does so, it is wrong, morally wrong, uh, tragically wrong. Because God's word is the right standard that it then violates. And not only is it right, but because it is right, it is that which brings the soul greatest joy. Look at verse 8 and it says, uh, the commandments of the Lord, uh, the precepts of the Lord are right. What's their action? Rejoicing the heart. Rejoicing the heart. There is joy in a life. That is conformed to obedience to the truth that God's word gives. Real joy. Lasting joy. As you do, our church, we have a lot of young people. And at this point, when I was preaching this at our church, I just began to plead with them. That that, that this joy of having a life aligned with the God who made us for himself is a joy that I would want every one of our young people to know. It's the joy that every parent in here, young people, your parents pray this for you at night. Uh, They they plead before God that this is indeed what would take hold of you. They know that the world out there will tell you that the way you find joy is to defy God's word and go your own way. Do that which seems right to you. Follow your heart. But that indeed is the the way, the path of misery. That is the way that seems right to a man, but brings death. And there are people, we could stop right now, and there are people in this room who could stand up and give you testimonies about the death they've tasted and the bitterness they still deal with because they thought they could be right apart from God's truth. And, and frankly, young people, I would spare you that. And the Word of God would spare you that God's ways are always best, and they lead to that place of greatest Joy, And so you must know and treasure this word because it is the fountain of that life. Fourth, the commandments of the Lord are pure. Or it's in the singular. The commandment of the Lord is pure. A commandment refers to God's instruction for our good. Deuteronomy 10.13 says, Keep The commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for your good. Every command of God is for your good and will lead to good. If you follow it, it doesn't mean like the, some of the false preachers say, it'll, it'll lead to you know, big houses, big cars, big, big salaries, things like that. But that which is ultimately and lastingly good comes through walking with God. And, and it is the word that leads us in that walking with God. And how does it lead us? Notice it says it gives light to our eyes. In fact, this word pure means radiant, filled with light. The word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, leading us safely through this dark and twisted world of sin as it brings us safely home into the presence of our Lord, as it carries us to Him. So, understanding that God doesn't give commandments to keep you from good, but to lead you to it. To keep you from sin's harm. So this radiant word lights your way uh, as you take it in and follow its course day after day. What a treasure is God's word. Fifth, the fear of the Lord is clean. God's word taken into your life produces fear. 
reverence for God, a seeing Him for who He is. The more you see and know Him, frankly, the less you care what Facebook thinks or your friends think or a rebel world thinks. You grow to care only for what God thinks because He is the one before whom you must stand and give an account. And it is that reverence for God, that reverence for God, putting Him first, responding to Him first, that has cleansing power. It it sanctifies you as you let it do its cleansing work of leading you closer and closer to Him. John 17, 17, Jesus in His prayer said, Sanctify them by the truth, Your Word is truth. Hey, this Word can make the filthy clean by bringing us to Christ. This Word can wash a dirty mind and cleanse a soiled conscience by showing us the beauty and the completeness of the work and the person of Christ. Oh, to to have the water of this Word running freely through your mind, washing away the dirt and the grime of sin, bringing you again and again and again to Him. Six, the rules, or we could say the rulings of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. What God determines to be right is right, no matter what anyone else says or thinks about it. Why? Because they're true. And to be true here means that they conform to reality. They describe what is really real. They they tell us what is really there. Again, the insanity of living in a God-made world as if God didn't exist and His Word was not true when it's His Word that lights the path and shows us the dangers and shows us what's really there. God's Word has truth built into it. Man's Word isn't like that. Man's Word doesn't conform to reality. Uh, Man's words are often simply fantasy. They often tell us what we selfishly wish was true, not what actually is true. But we all know that wishing something to be true does not make it true. I can tell you that I'm a woman, but my words can't change my DNA, nor can they change God's good creation design of me, which I miss if I insist on believing a lie rather than the truth. God's words are always true because they define reality. They don't simply reflect it, they define it. And if I'm going to live in reality, I need to have this truth. I need God to show me what is good, that I may walk in that which is good, that I may know Him and enjoy Him uh, as He indeed intends. I need His Word living in me to change my mind and shape my heart and orient my soul to Him day after day. Uh, I I get up in the morning and and I say, Lord, I'm living in a world filled with lies. I've got a heart that will lie to me. I've got flesh that will mislead me. I need oriented to what is true. I wake up, I open His Word, I read it, I seek His presence in it because it's going to be orienting me to the truth and the reality that I need to see. I always tell my church, the reason I have a quiet time or whatever you want to call it every morning has nothing to do with legalism. It has everything to do with life. (laughs) Uh, I I need that word ruling over me. We have these six images. Then he tells us that God's word, far from being something we should begrudge as standing against us, is in fact something we should embrace 
as standing for us, as giving us joy. Verses 10 and 11. Look at this. More to be desired is this word than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, that is these commandments, these precepts, your servant is warned in keeping them there is great reward. Is this how you see God's word? As the psalmist describes it here, more precious than gold? More precious? Can you say that, honestly? Is that the affection of your heart for the words God has given? If somebody came along and offered you $10 million to throw away your Bible and never touch another, never open another, never look at another, would you do that? I mean, seriously, would you do that? Because it really does reveal the condition of your heart, the condition of your soul, if there is a... If there is a price out there that would matter more, right? If, if, if mere money and the temporary pleasures it can buy would outweigh for you in any way the eternal treasures collected for you in God's Word. Or let's make it more practical. Are you willing to lose your job for what's written in here? Or family? Or friends? Are you willing to be hated without cause because this is indeed your treasure? Is hearing and knowing God more precious to you than anything at all money could buy so that you are treasuring it up, hoarding it up, storing it up in your life like a greedy miser hoards gold because you value it and you treasure it and, 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 and you, you long for what it is giving as it brings you to God or does it simply sit idle? Throughout the week. As something that doesn't really occur to you because it's just not that important to you. Is it, I love this here, sweeter than honey to you? Honey was indeed the sweetest substance they knew of in those days. This doesn't hit us with the impact it should because we have lots of other stuff. Honey was the sweetest thing they knew. I mean, back in that day, you find honey somewhere hidden in a tree log. You have hit the jackpot. I mean, this is the best stuff. I love this stuff. I mean, mm, this is good. I'm not sharing this with anybody except maybe my wife. You know, do you see God's word that way? It's good. I mean, good in the in the sense that 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 you you, you want it. It's it, 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 you crave it. You 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 desire it. You, you have a little bit of it. You want more of it because it, it's that sweet to you. I think one reason we don't engage God's Word more than we do is because we don't value it as we should. We, we take it for granted. Huh. I was, I've been reading a history of the Reformation, and I'm stunned again by men like William Tyndale, who poured out everything and died, martyred, strangled, and then burned because he refused to put down the Word and insisted on putting it in the English language so other people could have it. I forget how precious the Word is to men like that. I want it to be precious like that. Christian, God's Word is such a treasure. And, and I ask myself this, are you treating it like a treasure? Precious and valuable, making it a priority. Is it to your delight? And you say, well, no, it's not. And, and so, so, so do, you, do, do, you, do you battle your heart till it is your delight? And for me personally, some mornings I get up and I'm dead and I'm dull and I don't care and, you know, Facebook's calling or whatever. And I just have to go to the Lord and say, Lord, my heart isn't where it needs to be towards your word. Would you give me a love for your word? Would you, would you give me a passion, a hunger for it? Lord, would you give it to my kids? 
Asking the Lord to, 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 to create this. When you delight in something, you want as much of it as you can possibly get. And so, just a test for ourselves, do you, does your life reflect the high value you place on God's Word as you delight in it and seek it? Well, why should you? Because verse 11 tells us, By this word your servant is warned, in keeping it there is great reward. This word warns you. It shows you when you've gotten off track. It shows you the pitfalls of sin so you don't fall into them. You know, some of you right now are, are feeling the sting of consequences from stepping off the path. And God's word can spare you that. Even more importantly, it can recover you from that and set you back on the path. But, but we've got to be taking it up and, and, and believing its promises and beginning with the gospel promises that Christ gives us. Uh, the word warns us. It, it keeps us from the harm that otherwise we would put ourselves into. But second, because the word brings great reward. Obedience to the word brings reward. Living by God's word keeps us in fellowship with Jesus where our souls are revived, as it says here. Wisdom is given. Joy is supplied. Light guides our way and truth leads us into eternity. These are the benefits of the word that flow into our lives as we encounter it. This is, this is the means by which God gives these many blessings and he has ordained that he would give them to us through his word. So that when we neglect that word, we so often forfeit the enjoyment of these very things. We, we suffer the consequences of our ignorance. And I, by the way, I'm speaking a testimony to you there. Been there, done that too many times. Uh, which brings us into the final section of this psalm. So much we could look at, but that is our response to God's word. Verses 12 to 14. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Here is our response. We must hear him speak and respond to his speaking with faith-filled obedience to that word. You'll notice... These verses are a prayer. We've, we've, we've moved from talking about creation and talking about the word to the psalmist now praying to God concerning his response to this word. And notice he prays three things. And these are three things we ought to pray. How's our time? You know, one thing I think we often do as Christians is when we hit a brick wall, when we hit a dead spot, we just sort of say, well, that's where I am. Rather than taking up the fight against it and saying, okay, Lord, that's where I am. This is not where I want to remain. I need you to do something. And we, it always begins with prayer. It always begins by taking God at His word. It always begins by, by believing its promises, um, whether you feel them or not, but believing Him until you do feel them. <laughs> uh, and, and asking Him to, to deal with the heart. So, so three prayers here the psalmist prays. And I would encourage you to pray. First, he prays, Lord, show me my sins and justify me by faith as I turn to you. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden 
faults. You know, one problem that we have with our own sin is that we so often just don't see it. We become nose blind to our own sin. You know what nose blind means, right? Um, Those of us who have pets need to be careful about this. Um, We have a dog. Nah, my daughter has a dog, but because she lives with us, the dog lives with us. Did you ever walk into a house somewhere and say, whew, there's a cat in here somewhere. Some dirty dog hiding in a corner, you know, a hamster? Because you smell it. I've got a slight allergy to a hamster, so I mean, I would love you and I'd go to your house and I wouldn't say anything. But as soon as I walk in that door, it, it hits me. My eyes start watering. I, I start closing up. But the folks who live in that house can't smell any of that anymore. Right? They become nose blind to it. You know what I'm talking about, right? You've been there. I'll have friends of ours come over and say, okay, can you smell that dog? Because I want to clean this house if you can. You become nose blind. We become nose blind to the stench of our own sin. We stop smelling it. We stop seeing it for what it is. We need something to come into our lives and point it out to us. Now, a good brother or sister can do that, but they can only do that from the Word. And so it really is God's Word that is that something. It is that Word that comes to us and and clears the air and brightens the room and, and shows you what is really there as it holds up the mirror for you to see. And when it does show you what is there, it's so that you can then turn and say, Lord, cleanse me. Lord, do for me what only you can do. Lord, declare me innocent through Christ. (laughs) Expose the sin that I've hidden. And bring it to the cross of Christ. And there, publicly crucify it and take it away. Wash me that I may be clean. Thinking of David's prayer in Psalm 51. So that by faith in Christ's blood, I may be declared righteous. This is the only remedy there is for sin. Taking it to the cross of Christ. And the word shows us our sin that we may run with it to Christ. And oh, what a remedy this is. And it is the word of God's gospel that takes us there. The second thing we should pray. We should pray, Lord, turn me from my sin so it no longer has dominion over me. Verse 13. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. This is a cry for sanctification. The first one uh, was leaning in on justification, sins exposed, running to Christ, being justified by faith. This one is talking about sanctification, uh, for God to lead me daily in holiness. So not only do I need to have my sins forgiven to the cross of Christ, I also don't want those sins ruling over my life anymore. I want to be free from them. And so I pray, Lord, keep me from presumptuous sins. Now, what is a presumptuous sin? That's what the Apostle Paul warns about in Romans 6, 1 and 2. You remember this passage, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Hey, Jesus likes to forgive. That I, got a, I got a deal going here, right? I like to sin. He likes to forgive. It works out great. So let's just, let's just keep going. No. What shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Well, this is the cry of the Christian. Every time we choose to sin... 
Um, as a believer, it is presumptuous. We're presuming upon the grace of God. We, we look at forgiveness and say, well, you know, I'm forgiven anyway, so I might as well just sin. But, but, but the Christian can't live in that place. The Christian who knows the riches of God's grace can't cheapen grace in that way because we do know that sin is a poison. We know that we cannot take it lightly. And so while it is true that, yes, Christians still sin, no Christian can afford to be casual about sin, to take it lightly. And that's what we see in this psalmist. Uh, if you're in Christ, you will hate your sin. Isn't that true? I get irritated by other people's sins, but I hate mine. And the more I look at the Word, the more I learn to hate it, and the more I am thrown back upon Christ saying, Lord, keep me from presumptuous sins. These sins that crucified my Lord. These sins that poison my life and poison my relationships and bring shame upon Your name. And so the, with the psalmist, you begin to cry, Lord, don't let these sins have dominion over me. Break their power. What a prayer. Paul prays, teaches us to pray something like that in Romans 6, 12 to 14. Let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members presented to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin shall have no dominion over you because you're not under law, but under grace. I don't just have a law telling me not to do it. I have grace filling me and cleansing me and changing me and, and bringing me to Christ and giving me hope and causing sin to no longer have dominion over me. Uh, the benefits and the gifts of the gospel. And this is the cry of the Christian. This is the earnest desire of a heart that is cultivated Upon God's word. Um, this is what the word gives us. So the psalmist says, Lord, work this in me so that I am blameless, so that my life is not stained by any great sin having dominion. So I'm free to walk as closely with you as a redeemed sinner possibly can. That's what we desire. And that's what the word gives as it leads us again and again to Christ and the gospel and the grace that is ours in Him. And then finally we pray, Lord, let me be thoroughly Christian as I live in daily fellowship with You. Verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in Your sight, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. Again, notice this is a prayer. This is a prayer we ought to pray. Do you pray this way? Lord, let every word that comes out of my mouth today be pleasing to you. Let every thought that passes through my mind be honoring to you. And as soon as it's not, it's held up by the mirror of your word. Let me see it so that once again I can take it with repentance and confession and find that indeed, as I confess my sins, you are faithful and just to forgive me my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Lord, let this be something taking place in real time. As soon as I've said a word to my wife that I ought not have said, that, you, that, 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 that your word shows me me and I confess and repent and reconcile it as soon as my feet stray in this direction or I, I begin looking at you know the, in the direction of this website Lord you're alerting me you're awakening me not to crush me not of legalism but because you love me because because I want my words my thoughts my actions to be pleasing to you because I find that is the, the, the place of the greatest pleasure for me in your presence there is fullness of joy 
How is that kind of life possible for the Christian? Well, only when God's word permeates our lives. When, we've, when I've treasured that word and it's filled my mind and my mouth with his presence. And, and so that's where I, I would urge you to, to do that. <laughs> Fill your mind and your mouth with God's word daily. Let it shape the whole of your life. Let it shape your thinking. Let it shape your desires. Let it orient you to God. And above all, let it bring you to Christ. You say, I already know Christ. No, let it bring you to Christ again and again and again and again. Uh, you know, from, the, from the moment you first met Him, let this now become the passion that drives you to Him again and again and again. So that, that you do know Him. In, in these final two words here, He is your rock, right? He is steadfast and immovable. Uh, that, that firm foundation you can stand upon and not slip. And He is your Redeemer. He has saved you from your sins. And He is saving you from your sins. He's purchased you back from hell and death, and he is, he is claiming you as his doulos, his slave, his bond slave who belongs to him and, and who would, would not wish to be anywhere else but walking with him. May the Lord take his word, create these desires, and bring this about in our lives as we see him. Yes, we see him in creation. We rejoice in his creation, and we, we're reminded of his greatness in creation. But then we go to His Word to know who He actually is and what He's actually done and, and how that brings us to know this great Creator in a way that is personal and real through the death, burial, resurrection of His Son. Amen. Father, Your Word is such a treasure. We barely scratch the surface of all that is here. All that would win us over and woo us to Christ. All that would cause us to see not only that He is true, but that He is beautiful. <laughs> Not only that He saves us from hell, but that He brings us to Himself. So Lord, would You, even now, I don't know what individuals here need to determine from what they've heard. Maybe it'll begin by going outside looking up and just seeing God there. But don't let it stop at that place. Maybe it's a determination that needs to be made that I will make a priority of being in God's Word whether I feel like it or not. And I'll ask the Lord to open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from His law. And I will, I will take positive efforts to treasure it, to believe it, to trust it, to love it. I'll ask the Holy Spirit to work this in me just as I know He can. And to let this Word shape me until I am renewed uh, and transformed by the renewing of my mind. That I may know and walk in the center of God's perfect revealed will in His Scriptures. These things we ask for Christ's sake. Amen.